Many Americans and many people from the West look at Islam as another religion. They have some confusion as to whether it is a true religion or not, and a lot of debate is going about. But one thing that we have to really realize is that we have to take seriously this encounter between the West and Islam. If we don't take it seriously, we're going to be in great trouble in the future. I look over the eschatology of both Islam and Christianity. And eschatology is very simply the doctrine and study of the last days. What is going to happen in the last days? And fascinatingly enough, both Christianity and Islam have very well-defined theologies of what is going to happen in the last days. Now, in Christianity, we all believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. The fact of the matter is, I don't believe there is a single doctrine in, in uh, Christianity that is so widely accepted by all of the various branches of Christianity that says Jesus Christ will return. He is going to come back again. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what's going to happen. Some say that he's going to come as a thief in the night, and suddenly he's going to appear, and there he is. Some say, no, there has to be certain events that are going to take place before he comes. Some say the church is going to be raptured out, and when the church is gone, the world is going to continue on, and there's going to be time of great tribulation. There are many, many different forms of eschatology in the Christian church, and I don't want to get into these. I just want to get into the fact that Christians believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. And they have in the book of Matthew very definite uh, statements as to what will take place before that happens. And, and most Christians believe this will happen. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars. There's going to be uh, earthquakes in diver places. And the Bible tells us a lot about it. Well, Islam also has an eschatology. And in this eschatology, they believe that the day will come when Christ will return also. I found that interesting to think that they too believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back upon this earth. The fact is that the fourth holiest place in all of Islam is Damascus. The holiest one is Mecca. The second holiest is Medina. The third holiest is Jerusalem. And then comes Damascus. And if you go to Damascus and look at the large central mosque that they have there, you will see that one part of it has a gabled roof on it. And it used to be a Christian church. In fact, there is a door there, and this door has carved in wood, Jesus Christ, your kingdom is eternal. And so with this Jesus Christ, your kingdom is eternal, they, they uh, still acknowledge Christ as the greatest prophet outside of Muhammad. But they also believe that when Jesus Christ returns, that he is going to return to Damascus. And they also believe that when he returns, he is going to preach in the minaret over the mosque in Damascus. And they call this the Jesus Minaret. So they believe that Jesus Christ is going to return. And there is different varying views of, of the return of Jesus Christ. Some give a certain number of uh, years that he's going to live on this earth and that he's going to have a family, he's going to have a wife, and he's going to have children, and he's going to preach. And when he preaches, he is going to preach to the Christians about Muhammad and about Islam, and then the whole world will accept that, and then Christ is going to die, and he is going to be buried on the left-hand side of Muhammad. They still consider him to be a man. But one of the beliefs that they have, 
particularly in the Shia religion, which is the Shiite Muslims that live in, in Iran, is they believe that, uh, that there are certain events that are going to happen before the world comes to an end. Most Muslims, if not all Muslims, believe that the whole world will become Islamic. How that's going to take place and when, they don't know. I might state that the, uh, the Muslim World League in Mecca says that the date when the whole world will become Muslim will be the year 2080. So that's not too far off because they said by that time they will have succeeded in making the world Muslim. Now, one of the uh, Shiite uh, theology says this. It says that there is an imam, and there is the twelfth imam. You see, in the history of Islam, there was, a, there was a series of imams or leaders of Islam. And there was one after the other after the other until the twelfth imam came. And the twelfth imam was born in the year 868, but they say he was placed by God into hiding until the day of judgment. And this 12th imam was only six years old when he disappeared. His father was an imam, and this young boy disappeared at 868. And in the Shiite religion, they say that the 12th imam will come back. And when the 12th imam comes back, then the world will become Muslim, and then at that time, the day of judgment is going to take place. So, so the, uh, the Shiites, particularly a group within the Shiites called the Swelfers or the Twelvers, believe that that twelfth Imam is going to come. Now, down through the history of um, of uh, Islam, there have been various uh, people that have come and declared themselves to be the twelfth Imam. It's the same way in the Sunni religion. They believe that a messianic figure is going to return, and, and this man is going to be called the Mahdi. And the Mahdi is going to be a little bit like Christ. He's going to come, and, and he's going to prepare the way for the Day of Judgment. So the Sunnis have the Mahdi's, and the um, Shiites have the twelfth uh, Imam. Now, this begins to be important to us because in the Shiite faith, they believe that there must be certain steps that are taken for the preparation of the return of the twelfth imam. And they believe strongly that the day is going to come soon for that to happen. Now, also in the Shiite theology that has developed, let's say, within the last uh, 40, 50 years, has been this. They say that the twelfth uh, imam will not come until Israel is wiped off of the earth. That as long as Israel exists as a tool of Satan, they say, as a tool of Satan there in, in the land of, of Palestine, as long as Israel exists, the twelfth imam will not come. So we're, we're at a point now where suddenly we see that many of these things that have been said in the Bible of wars and rumors of wars and all these things happening are, are beginning to come together. Now, I find another interesting thing, this that in Islam they say that before the world comes to an end, there is going to be a mass movement of people to Islam, a mass movement of people to Islam. Islam will, will, will rule the world. Now, Christians are a little bit different. We in Christianity don't believe that that is going to happen. We don't believe that there is going to be a revival to the extent that the whole world is going to become Christian and then Jesus Christ is going to return. In fact, exactly the opposite. 
Because in the Bible, it says that Jesus mentioned that the day is going to come when people will turn against you. It's going to be persecution where there's going to be many false Christs and false prophets and they're going to come and they're going to seduce many people. And so in reality, you find that probably what's going to happen is that there's going to be a turning away from Christianity, that many people are going to leave the faith and then Jesus Christ is going to return. Now, you, you see that this kind of goes hand in hand. Here the Muslims on one side are saying many are going to come to Islam. On the other side, we say that many people are going to be leaving Christianity. And you can see how these might be able to fit in uh, together with each other. So as you look at, at the future, we see that, that there are some similarities. When I was a young man and I began reading in the Bible, I had a great problem with this passage in the book of Matthew where Jesus was telling about the events that preceded his coming. Because one of the events said, and the gospel will be preached in all of the nations of the world. And then comes the end. But the Bible also says there's going to be a falling away of the faith. And many people are going to uh, be seduced by false Christs and false prophets. And I was having a problem with that, saying, how could these two be taking place at the same time? Proclamation of the gospel in the whole world at the same time a falling away. Well, I know now. Because I'm old enough to see the world. Today, there is a revival of missions in the world. There are missionaries, Christian missionaries, in every country of the world, in most of the language groups of the world, to most of the people groups of the world. The gospel is being proclaimed in the world, and there is revival taking place. There's revival in China. There's revival in, uh, in many of the Muslim countries, as we're seeing a movement of God, Algeria has a church that is growing rapidly. In many parts of the world, we see this happening. And at the same time, we see a falling away of people in Europe, the United States, many of the old Christian countries, as people are saying, we are no longer interested. And so when you come to eschatology about what's going to happen, I just see more and more clearly as you study Islam and as you study Christianity that these are coming together. And I believe that we're really living in the last days. And therefore, I think we should take very, very seriously this growth of Islam. I also have a tendency to believe that Islam is, is spoken about quite often in, in the area of prophecy. And I see Islam as being the Antichrist. I see Islam as, as being a very much great part of this, this, this evil that ultimately is going to come into the world. I also see the time of Armageddon coming. I see the, the battle taking place. I see uh, the, this tremendous war where there's going to be an extensive destruction. And most people will prophesy that today. In fact, in Time magazine not very long ago, they had an article and they said, can Israel win the war? And the author of that article said, no, they can't win the war. And the only thing that's going to happen is that Israel is going to be ultimately destroyed. And, I mean, you know, you start thinking a little bit about what the Bible says, and you read that, and you begin saying, uh-oh, we've got some problems ahead of us. So uh, I'm not one of these individuals that likes to go around saying that we're living in the last days. Because I think that even though we are living in the last days, I don't feel like that ought to be what we are, are talking about. I think we ought to talk about the fact that we should be missionary and go into the world and try to win as many people as we possibly can to Jesus Christ 
before the end does come. Well, let's talk now. Let's change gears a little bit. And let's get away from eschatology in Islam and Christianity. And let's go into the idea of witnessing to Muslims. Now, I'm a professor of evangelism. And being a professor of evangelism, I'm very interested in evangelism. And evangelism, that is sharing the gospel with people and helping to bring them to salvation in Christ. It's interesting to note that within Christianity, there is a tremendous difference between uh, Christian groups as to what evangelism means. Ecumenical Christians have a tendency to believe that evangelism is equal to social action. You do something good, you help people. And they would even go ahead and say that evangelism is is doing something good. You take an old lady and walk her across the streets, you're doing evangelism. You feed the poor, you're doing evangelism because you're doing something good. Evangelicals come along on the other side and say, no, evangelism really has four steps. Four steps. Number one, it's the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the bringing of the person to faith in Jesus. It is the discipling of that person and bringing them into the church. And then lastly, it is the helping them to bring about healing in the land and healing in other people. So, so I see evangelism as being actual witnessing and talking to people. Well, a lot of people have come to me and said, Brother Wagner, you presented in your book all of these things about the dangers of Islam in the world today. And the most frequently asked question to me is, what's your answer? <laughs> what are you going to do about it? You, you believe that it's bad. You believe that they haven't said, what are you going to do about it? And my answer is very simple. That's my next book. And my next book is going to be How to Witness to, to Muslims. And, and, and I'd like to just bring about some of these steps to you at this point. I, I think they may be helpful to you. Actually, what I did is I started working a long time ago trying to find effective ways to, to evangelize Muslims. It, it's a difficult thing to do because I've been to libraries, in my own library, where I have multitudes of books, and they're entitled How to Evangelize Muslims, How to Win Muslims to the Lord, How to Evangelize to, to uh, the Islamic Nation. And there's all kinds of methods and all kinds of ways to do it. And I'm not going to try to give you an ABC for spiritual laws. You do this and this and this and your result's going to be this. I'm going to give you some very broad categories. I received a letter one time from um, uh, Dudley Woodbury at Fuller Theological Seminary. And he said, Brother Bill, we're going to make an extensive study about how to evangelize Muslims. And we'd like to have any input that you can give. And they got input from many, many people. And then after a long study with much input from many people, they came and they put out a statement saying, these are the ways that we feel like you should evangelize. I was very interested to note that my four steps in witnessing were included in this and probably formed the core of what these uh, great scholars said are the ways to witness. Let's talk about ways of witnessing to Muslims. I've got four ways. The first way is building bridges. Second way is contextualization. Third way is spiritual encounter. And the fourth is love. Let's start with building bridges. Uh, You see, building bridges, there was a very famous uh, missiologist uh, by the name of Donald McGavran. And he wrote a book that became the pioneer book and the most important book in the church growth movement. And the title of it was Bridges of God. 
And what McGavin was saying was that in every religion, in every movement, in every culture, in every society, God has put something within that society that can be the starting off place to build a bridge to faith in Jesus Christ. But the only thing is you have to find that. I'm sure that you're all aware of the famous movie and the famous book entitled Peace Child where the missionary went down to the tribe in New Guinea and, and he kept trying to find some way to win these people. He went in with, with metal tools and medical help and he helped the people and he lived with the people and he worked with the people. And every time he would talk to them about, about Christ and tell them the story, these people felt as if deception was the, the most important trait in, in, in the human life, deception. And so when he would tell the story about Jesus and how he was uh, deceived and how he was uh, betrayed by Satan, not by Judas, the people clapped for Judas and said Judas was a hero and that Jesus was the, the fool in this story. And it seemed like no matter what he did, he could not find that bridge to help him to understand the importance of the love of Jesus Christ for us and how God sent his own, only son. To, to be a witness to us. Well, if you read the book, you know the story, but I'll just summarize it very quickly. Because in the book, the, the missionary uh, came and said to his people, I'm going to leave. You, you, you're a warring t- tribe. You have wars with all of your neighbors, and you continue to have wars. You've got a war now. And he said, if you don't stop this war, and if you don't stop warring against your neighbors, I'm going to leave. I'm just not going to stay here. And so they all got together and they said, well, let us think about this a little bit. And so finally they came to him and they said, all right, we, we agree with you. We understand that uh, you, you want us to stop warring and uh, you brought us tools and medicine and we enjoy your presence here. So we'll do what you say. We, we will stop the war. So they decided to have a peace treaty with the tribe that they were at war at, which was a neighboring tribe. And so they invited the missionary to come. And as you remember the story that here it was, all of the uh, warriors from one tribe lined up facing the others, and the others on the other side lined up facing. And they had two women, one woman from each of the tribe, and they would be there without clothes on, as was a habit in these these, uh, primitive uh, societies. And they would stand with their legs apart, and they would take the newest born child from either one of the two, and they would pass this child between the legs of the two ladies, and that child became the peace child. And the child represented the fact that this child was born from both of the tribes, and as long as this child lived and existed, then there would be peace between these two tribes, the peace child. And so the missionary said, Aha, that's it, here's the bridge. And so he came and he said, now there was war between God and man. And there was a need to have a, a peace. And the way that this peace was going to be existed was a child that came from both man and from God. And this child is Jesus. And Jesus brings us peace. And we can have peace at this point. Hey, that's it. We understand. They got it. So what he did is he discovered a bridge that would be, could be built to help them. Well, what I'm saying is this. If you're really serious about trying to, to witness to Muslims, 
you have to find that bridge from your people group, from your society to the Muslims so that that bridge can be built. Now, I could give you uh, what a lot of people say is a bridge. Some people say the fact that Jesus Christ is mentioned so many times in the Quran and in the Bible and they accept him as a prophet, Jesus is the bridge in himself. I must admit that I've had no success whatsoever in this. And the reason being is as soon as I start saying Jesus is the bridge, they say he was a prophet, he was not the Son of God, they have their mind made up, and the bridge seems to come to a, a dead end. Others say it might be Mary. Look at Mary, because Mary was mentioned and, and very greatly respected. It might be Mary. And most people will have a different type of a bridge as they study Islam. But I'm saying that if, if you want to build bridges to Islam, what you need to do is you need to study Islam. You need to read books on Islam. You need to look at the theology of Islam. You need to be able to be a master of Islamic thought. And if you do that, and you're really serious about it, and you pray and you say, God, show me that bridge that I can use that will make me an effective witness to Muslims, I think he will do it. But I don't think it's just going to come simply. I think it has to take a certain dedication. And my hope and prayer is that many of those watching these lectures are going to be feel compelled by the Spirit of God to say, I want to commit myself to winning Muslims to the Lord. If you do that, I think you'll be used mightily of the Lord, but you're going to have to spend a lot of time studying. If you're serious about trying to be a witness to Jesus Christ, you need to study Islam, you need to look at it, you need to learn as much as you can, and you need to pray that God will help you to find that bridge that you can use. The second one is contextualization. Contextualization. Now, contextualization is one of those terms that, uh, you know, you're not sure exactly what it means, but what it does mean is this, is being able to put the religion that you're trying to reach, in our case, Islam, into a, I mean, Christianity, to put Christianity into a context that they can accept. Dr. Donald McGavern says this, I think he's right, he says, the greatest hindrance to the missionary message of Jesus Christ is not theological, it is cultural. People will not become Christians, not because of the theology. And we feel like if we can convince somebody theologically to be a Christian, they'll be a Christian. No, that's not the main reason. The main reason is cultural. They cannot leave their culture. They don't want to leave their culture. They're happy in the culture in which they are in. That brings me to a point. One time I was in Germany, and there was a man that was a Muslim, and he has a converted Christian, and he was living in Augsburg, and I was down in Sal no, he was living in Nuremberg, and I was in Salzburg. And I used to drive every Sunday up to preach in a church where this guy was a member. And as I would go and preach to him and talk to him, he would always... Uh, he showed me the fruits of the Spirit, that he, he really was a Christian, and I was interested in him. He was a Muslim, former Muslim. And so finally, one day I went up there, and I said, how are you growing in your Christian faith? He said, not very well. And I said, would you like to come down to Salzburg and be with us in Salzburg? He said, yes. And I said, we've got a youth center, and we've got a live youth group, and we've got a church, and, and we'd be glad to have you. And so he said, yes, I would like to come. So I was excited about that, and so I um, went back home, and I, I got him a, a job. 
which was not easy to do, working with Mercedes. I got him an apartment, which was not easy to do. I got him a car, which was not easy to do. And I, I got everything all fixed up for him. And I went back up to Nuremberg and said, I've got it all fixed up. You can come down and be with it. He was very excited about it. And he came down. And, and uh, sure enough, job, apartment. I said, you can come and be with our youth group. And we meet on Friday nights and Saturday nights and church on Sunday. And I told him all the things we could do. And I got him in his apartment. And I was very pleased with myself. I thought I'd done a lot of things. Well, about three months later, I was talking with him, and he said, Brother Wagner, I'm so disappointed in you. And I said, uh, why are you disappointed in me? I got you the apartment and the car, and ah, da, da, yeah, I shouldn't be disappointed. No, no, I'm disappointed. Why not? He said, I thought you were going to be my guru. I thought I was going to be able to go with you everywhere you went. You would be my mentor. You would teach me. And here you've left me alone. I'm so disappointed. And what I didn't realize was that this cultural activity in the life of a Muslim is such that once they tie on to one of their own people in their community, that there is a much closer community than what we have. In 1992, I went to a large conference in, in the Netherlands. And in this conference, we talked about a lot of things. One thing we asked was, how many people who convert from Islam to Christianity um, stay as uh, Christians or convert back to Islam, we were able to determine that probably 80% of all people that converted to Christianity reconverted back to Islam. This was a terrible thing for us to realize. We were experts in Islam, but almost all agreed with that. And one of the reasons why they, they went back was because we didn't understand their culture. We didn't understand that their culture dealt with a community and we were taking these young people, and particularly young men, and we were breaking them from their, their life insurance, from their uh, unemployment insurance, from their family, from their love, from all of the things that were dear to them. And we were saying, now you're a Christian, and we were not willing to give them what they needed. So I think that much of the problem that we face is culture. I might also mention that that was in 1992, but recently a group got together and we discovered that today that probably far higher majority of them that they are converting are staying with Christianity. And I think that has to do with this, this spiritual warfare and the fact that so many people are staying as, as Christians because they've had this real religious experience and Jesus Christ has really saved them. But contextualization, putting the gospel into the context of their people. Well, we have in, in Israel what we call a uh, Baptist village. And this Baptist village is really a Baptist uh, 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 kibbutzi, kibbutz, as they say, kibbutzi in German, kibbutz. And this kibbutz is really, it's a place where we've got orange trees and grapefruit trees and swimming pool and football field and tennis courts and houses and everything like that. And it's kind of a center that we have. And so, because I was working in Eastern Europe and Western Europe and Middle East and North Africa, I decided to have um, these conferences where I would bring together four different groups of people, all to the Baptist village in Israel, so that we could learn to appreciate one another and we could learn to love and we could learn from each other. So I went into Eastern Europe and I got all of these pastors from Russian Baptist churches. 
I went into Western Europe, and I got pastors from Western European churches, mostly Germans. Then I went down to Israel, and I got all of these uh, Messianic Christians that were Jews. And then we had a revival going on in one of the countries of the Middle East where there were many young people becoming believers. It was actually Gaza. And uh, we had a revival going on. And so we brought all of these people that were former Muslims, but now Christians, to the conference. So we had these four groups there together. Now, if you think you have problems in your church, you ought to bring these four groups together. There are all kinds of problems with, with this four group. I remember one time we were having a meeting, and it was about 10 minutes to 12, and 12 was our lunch period. And, and the, the temperature, I would say not the, the actual temperature of the room, but the temperature of the relationships was climbing and climbing and climbing. And I was just hoping that there wouldn't be a, 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 a outburst and there'd be a, a, that we could at least get to lunch and then maybe we could kind of calm down a little bit. But they, they disagreed with each other on a number of things. And finally, there was one young Messianic Christian girl from Sweden. Uh, I don't remember her name. I'll call it Jane. But Jane was one of these young girls that was just sweet. Have you ever met a sweet girl? I mean, just everything she says, everything she does, just covered with honey. And she was one of these people. And she raised her hand and she said, Brother Wagner, I'm so unhappy. Here we all are, believers of Jesus, our wonderful Lord. And our Lord's given us so much. And here we are in disagreement. And I just hope and pray that we can find a way that we can all be joined together in the Lord. And I said, thank you, Lord, for Jane. And she kept talking. And she says, I just think that we ought to show love for one another. We should not argue. We should not have any, any problems. And before she closed, she says, and I just want to say one more thing. I just want to thank the living God that he gave this beautiful land of Israel to the Jews. Whose land is it? It's our land! All of a sudden, an explosion. And, and they were starting up, and they started shaking their fists at each other. I said, okay, lunchtime. Let's go to lunch. Let's go to lunch. And I realized that Jane, in all of her sweetness, still could not realize the problem. The problems were there. Well, one of the things I decided to do with this group of people was to have a contextualized Islamic Christian worship service. And I had a friend who was a missionary, and he was working in Jerusalem, and I went and saw him, and he would wear Islamic dress, and he had a big black Islamic beard, and he looked just like a Muslim. But what he was trying to do is he was trying to put the Christian worship experience into a Muslim context. And he had been working on that for, for a long period of time, for several years, in fact. And he had even translated the call to prayer uh, in, into a Christian uh, term where he was using parts of the book of Luke, and he was having a call to prayer. And it was all being said in Arabic. But he had put together this whole worship experience. So we invited him to come to these four groups and to uh, go through this contextualized worship service. So what happened is we got there, and sure enough, he got up on the roof of the auditorium and gave the call to prayer, which was the Gospel of Luke. And he just gave the call to prayer. So we came. And before we went in, we had to wash our feet, and we had to wash behind our neck. We had to wash our ears and our nose. And we went through all the ritual cleansing. Then we went into the auditorium. The auditorium was switched to where it was facing Jerusalem. 
And by the way, it also faced Mecca, but that was all right. It faced Jerusalem. And then we all had our little square spots all outlined on, on the floor. And so we got down on the floor, and when we prayed, we would sit just like the Muslims would sit. And then we would pray like the Muslims would pray, and we would stand and pray. And we did everything like the Muslims did, but we were praying to God. And then he got up, and he preached us a message from the Bible. And then when it was all over with, we went back. I thought that was interesting. Here we were contextualizing the gospel. It was fairly successful, and, and I felt it was good. So I went to the leaders of these four groups afterwards, and I asked them this question. What did you think about this contextualized worship experience? I thought the answers were interesting. The Russians said, that was not good. The only way to worship God is the way we worship God. We are the only right ones in the world. All the others are wrong. Good. That's the Russians. Went to the Germans. What do you think? Oh, that was wonderful. Oh, I can hardly wait till I get back home in my church and we can experiment with that too. I love to experiment. I went to the Jewish and said, what do you think? The Jewish said, Brother Wagner, we felt uncomfortable. We felt like some way we were in the presence of our enemies and, and we did not feel good at all about this particular form of, of worship. I went to the Muslims and I was trying to find out what the Muslims thought, or the ex-Muslims. And it was interesting what they said, because they said, Brother Wagner, we have been saved out of that ritual. Why are you trying to put us back into a false ritual when we've experienced the love of Jesus Christ? That was interesting. Well, when you start talking about contextualization, you begin to find that it has not had as much success as a lot of people thought it had. Messianic Christianity has had success. It's, it's been very useful in winning Jews to, to Christ and allowing them to continue to be a Jew. But it hasn't been nearly as successful with Muslims, with an exception. And that exception is that the camel method I spoke about before. And the part of the camel method is allowing people to continue to live a cultural Islamic life. And in many parts of the world today, there have been literally thousands and thousands of new churches that have been founded. But what they do is they say you can use the name Allah for God. You can worship on the days that they worship as Muslims. You can wear the Muslim clothes. You can do what you do. And, and there is a certain degree of contextualization there. But I must admit that it's very much debated. And For instance, one thing that's debated today is whether or not Christians can use the name Allah for God. And I would imagine it's probably about a 50-50 split on this one because there are many Christians that come and say, no, you cannot use the name Allah because Allah is the name of a foreign god. If, and if you say anything about Allah, you are worshiping a god that is false. Other Christians and many missionaries say, now wait just a second, if you know Arabic, you only have one name for God in Arabic, and that's Allah. There is no generic name for God. You can't say God or the gods. It's just one. There's Allah, and Allah is the greatest. So you've got to use that name. There are no other names for God. And so this, this, this conflict continues on as to whether or not you can use the name Allah or, or, or not. I have a tendency to come and say, well, 
I have no problem with that. I can use the name Allah for God, but I give it the meaning that I want. And the meaning that I want is the God of the Old Testament is Jehovah. And so I, I can accept that, but, but there is a lot of problems with that. Well, if you contextualize, you invariably allow them to use the name Allah because they say this is acceptable. Then you have the third one, and that is spiritual encounter. You see, in, in contextualization, you're trying to make it comfortably culturally for them. But I believe in spiritual encounter. It is what I go, go back to that idea of, of uh, encounter, spiritual encounter, uh, force encounter, might encounter. And I think that the most effective way is very simply to come and to say to these people, let me tell you something. The Spirit of God is alive and working today. You see, a lot of people in the Western world do not believe in what we would call experiential Christianity. They don't believe that an experience has the same value as a rational acceptance. They don't believe that if you have this experience of the love of Jesus Christ in your life, it has the same value as having a rational intellectual acceptance of the premises of Christianity. I disagree with them. I believe that many times the experiential is dominant over the intellectual. Now, uh, the old argument says the man that's had an experience is never at the mercy of a man that has an argument. But I have no problems whatsoever in, in trying to emphasize the experiential, emotional acceptance of God. Most people that I've talked to that become a Christian, I've said, have you, have you had an emotional experience? Yes. And as I witness to people, almost invariably today, when a person really accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, they will begin to cry and say, Oh, God, forgive me, forgive me, because it's an emotional experience. I have a, a way of witnessing uh, to people. And that basically started when I was a young pastor back in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I had my theology degree. And uh, I was pastor of a church. And a, a lady called me up one time and says, Brother Wagner, will you come and speak to me? It was a friend of my wife. Will you come and speak to me? There's a lady here, and she's a Jehovah Witness, and she uh, she wants me to become Jehovah Witness. Will you come talk to us? I said, yeah. So my wife and I went, and we went to the home of this lady and walked in, and here sat the lady, and here sat uh, uh, a young Jehovah Witness lady and my wife and myself. And so we spoke to him. Well, because I was theologically trained and very clever, before the night was over with, they were convinced that I was right, and I felt good about it. And the lady invited me and said, Thank you, Brother Wagner. It's all clear. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So my wife and I went home. Two weeks later, I got another telephone call. Will you come back again? We still have a few questions. Yeah, I'd be glad to. So my wife and I went back to visit the lady, and sure enough, here sat the lady of the house, and here sat the young Jehovah Witness lady. And in this corner sat an old Jehovah Witness lady with all of her books. And she was waiting for me. Well, we began our discussion about the faith. I don't know whether you've ever spoken to a Jehovah Witness or not, but you never are able to lie. You're speaking past each other. They have a certain belief system. They have a certain ideology. They have a certain way of expressing it, and they can't change. They can't go right or left, and you're speaking past each other. Well, after about two hours, I said, you know, we're making no headway whatsoever. 
I think that what we need to do is we need to get down on our knees and we need to pray and we need to say, God, help us to know the truth. God, we're here. We want to know the truth. Will you help us? Let us pray together. The old Jehovah Witness lady said, no, I'm not going to pray. I said, why not? She says, because you have a different God than I do. I have the true God. You have a false God. I said, well, fine. We'll pray. You pray to your God and I'll pray to my God and we'll pray that God will show us what the truth is. And she says, I will not do it. So I said, oh, no problem. So I got down on my knees and I began to pray, Father, I just pray that you will show us what the truth is. We want to know you. Well, the whole Jehovah Witness lady got upset. She grabbed her book. She walked out the door and she left. And I won. Not because of my academic rationale, but because we brought this problem to God. Well, I was working in evangelism with college students in Salzburg, Austria. And there is nobody more clever in the world than German university students. And we had a tea stube, a coffee bar, and we would talk to these young students about the faith. And we would sit up there hour after hour after hour talking about Bultmann and Schleiermacher and Kant and Barth and all of these theologians. And we would talk about all this. And I said to myself, we're not winning these people. We're not convincing them. Why not? So I developed an interesting method of witnessing to the college students that were Germans. And it was very simply this. I would say, now, my friend, if I could convince you that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and if I could convince you that Christ is alive today, and I could prove it to you, would you become a Christian? All of the students say, yes, I'd be, I'd be glad to do that. I always do this after I've met him and know him for a while. Okay, would you be willing to experiment? Yeah, I'll be willing to experiment. All university students want to experiment, okay? I'll tell you what I'd like for us to do. I'd like you and me to go into our prayer room, and I would like for us to get down on our knees before God, and I'm going to pray, and I want you to pray, and then I'll pray. And I'm just going to pray and talk to God, and then I want you to pray. And what I want you to pray is this. Father, if there be a God, I pray that you will reveal yourself to me. Okay? And then I will pray. Will you do that? Well, at that point, about 60% said, I'm not going to pray. It's just an experiment. No, I'm not going to pray. I won't do it. And they won't do it. Then I changed my whole direction. But about 40% of them say, yeah, let's try it. And we go into the prayer room. We get down on our knees. And, and I say, let me pray first. And I say, it's like talking to God. You talk to me. Jesus is with us. And when two or more gather together in my name, Jesus is there. So just talk to Jesus. And so I say, Jesus, Wolfgang and I are here in this room. And Wolfgang doesn't know you. And he wants to know you. I pray, Jesus, that you will talk to him and, and show him the truth in Jesus Christ. And it almost always is the same thing. There's a pause. And then I say, Wolfgang, can you pray? And Wolfgang will say, God, God, I want to know you, God. Help me, God, help me. <laughs> he starts to cry. And then he starts talking, Father, thank you, Lord. I know that you're alive. Thank you. I praise you. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. And the person has this spiritual experience because they've come into the presence of God. And the interesting thing about it is I would say 90% of the people that have come to that point 
are Christians today and leaders in the Church of Austria. In fact, we were in the Church of Innsbruck, and we had a, a church of 65 people in Innsbruck, and of those 65 people, 35 of them were medical students. All of them accepted the Lord in that way, and all of them are strong members of the church today. It, it, it's bringing them into the presence of God. Now, coming back into the Muslim witnessing, I, I've done this a lot with Muslims, and, and I must admit, I, I haven't done it as much as I want to do, and I want to do some more to find out what happens, but this is what happens. I'll go to a Muslim, and I'll say, will you help me to pray? Pray? Yeah, I like to pray like you do. Really? Yeah. How do you pray? Oh, well, we pray this way, and we pray, and we do this and that. And can I pray with you? Yeah, you can pray with me. Okay. And so I, I go through all of the processes of praying like they do. There's no problem. Then when I get done, I say, will you pray with me? Well, do you as Christians pray? We never see you pray. Well, I know you never see us, but we pray. Do you want to pray with us? Well, yeah. And because I prayed with them, they will pray with me. And so then I get down on my knees and I tell them the same thing. Now, Muhammad, you can talk to God. Jesus is with us because the Bible says we're two or more gathered together in my name. Jesus is with us. And I want you to talk with God and I'm going to pray too. And I begin to pray, Father, I pray for Muhammad. And I, I know that Muhammad does not know you and does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that you will help him to know you. Thank you, Father. And then there's this pause, and a longer pause. And I will say, Muhammad, can you pray? And he'll say, you're talking to God? Yeah. God's listening to you? Yes. No, 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 that, that, that's not possible. God's far removed. God, God's away. You can't have this relationship. Muhammad, if you will pray, you can know God. I have not had a single Muslim pray that first time. But boy, I've had a lot of them give a lot of thought to that. Because for them, God is so far removed from them, so far away, that they simply cannot know God in the same way that we do. Now what happens is later on, they begin to have a deeper understanding of the faith that we have, of the Christian faith. And uh, in one case, the man has come to faith. But I'm still working on this. But I do believe that rather than have us try to intellectually convince them through the Quran or even through the Bible, if we can bring them into the presence of the living God, I think that we will be far more successful. Well, the four steps of witnessing, we have building bridges, we have contextualization, putting the gospel into the context of the people. We have spiritual encounter, and, and I think that the spiritual encounter is probably the best way. And also, I might say, under this spiritual encounter, it's the idea of praying for a person to have a dream or a vision or an encounter with God. And that's where I found a lot of success because these people do have these prayers and answered, and, and God does work with them. But what is the fourth way of witnessing to Muslims? Well, it's, it's probably the most effective way. It's probably the easiest way, and it's probably the most difficult way. It's very simply love. Because you see, in Islam, love does not exist when I would go to these different open houses that they would have in the mosque after 
they would always say Islam is a religion of love. Islam has very little love in it. Now, there are 99 names of God, and one of those 99 names of God is loving. God is loving. But the word and the concept in the Arabic of loving means God will love you if you will love him. And so it is a restricted type of a love. But there is not this agape love. I love you without having anything in return. And so in Islam, Islam is void of love. And so to me, love is that bridge that we're looking to, just simply to love the people. They had a very large meeting of some of the world's leading Muslims in Malaysia. Oh, this has been a while back, maybe 10, 12 years ago. And the leading Muslim scholar and authority from Malaysia made this statement to the conference. He said to his people, Now, do not allow your people to come into contact with the Christians, because if you do, the Christians will love your people into their religion. You see, they, they were acknowledging that. They were acknowledging that. And nobody has reached that point in life to where they can ignore love. And that's where we're strong. It's just the idea of being able to love people, being able to share the love of Jesus Christ in their life, being able to agape them, to be able to say, we love you in Jesus. And I think that they, they see that that difference is there. Because within Islam, that love is a void, it's not there, they don't know what to do about it, and because it's not there, when they see it in the life of a Christian, I think that will influence them in the most effective way. Some of the most successful work that we have in, in, in work in, in the Middle East has been love. There was a terrible experience that took place in Yemen several years back, we had an outstanding woman, Dr. Martha, and uh, two of her co-workers, and they were working in the hospital in, uh, in uh, uh, Yemen. We had a Baptist hospital there. And uh, one day there was a guy come in, and he had an automatic weapon, and he walked in, and he just began shooting whoever he saw. Well, he killed the uh, medical doctor, Martha, and killed two of the other co-workers, and the news media picked up on it, and, and everybody was talking about it. And, and uh, everybody said, but you've got to understand this doctor. Because she was one of these individuals that had a tremendous amount of love. And every time I would go to Yemen, I would, I would try and be around her as long as I possibly could because you could feel this love that she had for the Arab people. I remember one time she had this quite large uh, Range Rover truck. I imagine it cost more than about 10 of the people's yearly salaries. I mean, it, it was a big truck, and it was expensive, and, and everybody knew it was kind of a luxury thing. But Martha would always go way back up in the mountains, and she had to have a Range Rover because there were no roads, and she just kind of made her own way. And she'd go all the way back up there in the mountains, to give the little children uh, immunization and to find out who was sick. And the people really loved her. And I, and I was trying to find out why they loved her so much. And so she says, Bill, you want to go with me? I'm going to go back up in the mountains. And most of these people said, yeah, let's go. So I remember we got in, in this truck. 
And I thought to myself, I wonder what the people think with this expensive truck, you know. They probably think, boy, these rich missionaries and have all this. And so she started up the mountain. And here was a couple of Yemenis walking up. Hop in. You want to go up the mountain? Yeah. And they hopped in. And they started laughing and went a little bit further. Hop in. And they hopped in. And we went up a little bit further. Come on. Come on. And everywhere we went, we was, pretty soon there was no more room, and they were hanging off the edge. Get on the top! And they got on the top, and they were sitting on the hood, and they were going, and all you could see was, was people going up the mountain. And they got up there to the top, and they said, thank you, Martha, thank you. People didn't see the expensive car. They saw the love that she had for them. And when she was killed, there was an outpouring in Yemen like never before. And probably even though she was a martyr for her faith, she probably did more in her death than she did in her life. Because there were many, many Muslims that said, this is Christianity, this is love. And she had showed love in a way that very other few people do. How do you witness to Muslims? Well, you build bridges. You find that in the study of Islam. You try to find ways to contextualize it so they don't have to come too far away from their culture. You give them the opportunity of having a spiritual experience with Christ, and you love them. Very simple, broad ways. But I believe that if God leads you into any one of these four, you can expand on that and be successful in winning Muslims to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you very much.